Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with ADH at the beginning of another Alan Jones week. Yes, I am Alan Jones. May I be permitted, though, a slight indulgence tonight because amidst everything that's going on in our lives, we learnt last week of the very sad passing of one of the great men in the world of sports medicine, the world of sports medicine, Dr Merv Cross. He passed away on Friday night after a long battle with pulmonary fibrosis for which there is no cure. Merv and I were soulmates. We went back a long way. I can't think of an athlete at any level, Olympian, cricketer, rugby player, rugby league player, or just a simple man and woman out of the suburbs. Merv would have them back on their feet and in sport or back to whatever challenge confronted them. He was a miracle man, but a genuinely beautiful human being. He came from a family who had not much, born in the bush, but he rose above all of that to give of his knowledge, his special skills, and I might add his money where need confronted him. He was a very good footballer in his own right for South Sydney, Eastern Suburbs and North Sydney, but he was a medical pioneer. He revolutionised keyhole surgery and arthroscopic ACL reconstruction. That's basically the knee with some of the world's greatest athletes. His son, Tom, Dr. Tom, also a thorough gentleman and now widely respected in the field of sports medicine. Tom said of his dad, he died courageously with grace and nothing unsaid. He was a giant in orthopaedics for 50 years. Every patient to him was a privilege. It was an honour to treat them, unquote. And so it was. Of course, as a pioneer, he was often mocked for his methodology, but Merv won out with talent, modesty and achievement. The roll call of outstanding athletes he treated is worldwide. He was a magnificent thinker and reader. I used to enjoy his emails and text messages telling me of something that he thought I needed to know. He was a board member of the NRL, and in 2007, Dr. Merv Cross was inducted into the American Journal of Sports Medicine's Hall of Fame. Only a couple of months ago, he and his son Tom announced a revolutionary bracing technique, which basically put in layman's language, allowed knee damage to heal without invasive surgery. Reluctantly, Merv lent his name to it, now known as the Cross Bracing Protocol, allowing hundreds of athletes to return to playing without surgery. Well, Dr. Merv Cross has passed on. A giant oak tree has crashed in the forest of medicine. Our thoughts are with his wonderful wife, Virginia, and the gifted children, Joe, Tom, Belinda, and John. It is a great story. The man from nowhere who reached the summit of achievement. No silver spoons in the mouth of Dr. Merv Cross. I always say that no one ever dies until the memories fade away and the memory of Dr. Merv Cross will live on forever. Well, it's never done in the world of, dull in the world of politics, but some common sense blends with stupidity every day tonight. I'll talk to a fair dinkum Aboriginal Australian in the middle of nowhere in the Northern Territory. He'll tell us, I think, that he regards the voice as garbage. Well, Peter Dutton's been ticked off wrongly re his criticism of the ballot paper. Now you can see this on the screen, there is the ballot paper. You're asked right at the bottom, see, do you agree this proposed alteration? You're asked yes or no. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Can't you write yes? Can't you write no? That's the question about the voice. Leave it there, Charles, but nothing could be simpler. If you just leave that shot up so that we can just have a look at it, nothing could be simpler. See, it tells you there it is, right? yes or no. Now, Peter Dutton is rightly complaining that, well, what if some people tick Give it a tick. Is that a valid yes vote? But, oh yes, it is. But if you put a cross, the vote's invalid. But it tells you there, see? Vote specifically yes or no. Peter Dutton is basically saying, if you don't do that, the vote should be invalid. Dutton is right. Well, the yes case, of course, through all of this continues to bury itself, no matter how many virtue signalers sign letters for full page advertisements in Australian newspapers with our money. Greg Sheridan, one of the outstanding Australian journalists of impeccable scholarship and integrity and international experience, wrote recently, and I quote, 
If Australians vote no in the voice referendum, it'll constitute a significant, heartfelt, courageous and supremely democratic act of independence and national pride in our modern political history. He wrote, it'll be a vote for a common and universal vision of humanity in which all Australians enjoy exactly the same civic status, regardless of their race or background, unquote. Well, well done to Chris Minns, the Premier of New South Wales. Rules requiring masks, oh, for God's sake, in New South Wales, hospitals will be scrapped, not before time. They never had any epidemiological validity. Changes to the Public Health Act will come into effect on September 1. COVID will be treated like every other disease and no longer will Kerry Chant be able to impose public health orders on people who contract COVID or come into contact with the virus. Premier Minns has also said you'll be able to board cruise ships without proving your vaccination status. He said we need, back, need to get life back to normal, said Chris Minns. Well, bit by bit, we're seeing that the draconian measures imposed on us, denying us our freedoms, were based on nothing more than alarmism and fear during coronavirus. But well done to that Victorian MP, Moira Deeming. What a shambles Victoria has become. Two dead men were re-signed as members of a Labor Party branch linked to an Andrews government cabinet minister. But Andrews Labor Party finds no one responsible for the multiple forgeries. The son of, the one, of the, son of one of the dead men is saying he may go to the police. I'll tell you something. I reckon there are many Victorian voters who know who the police should be visiting. Start on the steps of Parliament House. But it is Victoria. Moira Deeming is the MP, as you know, thrown out of the Parliamentary Liberal Party because she spoke at a Let Women Speak rally in March to protest the rights of women and children against those rights being infringed by transgender laws. Basically, biological men who transgendered being able to go into women's space. Well, protesters arrived, performed some of them the Nazi salute, and Pursuto, the leader of the Liberal Party in Victoria, whom no voter will follow, virtually accused Moira Deeming of having Nazi links. Well, the matter hasn't been resolved, and Moira Deeming will take Andrews to court. The public are saying, go Moira. And talking about politicians in court, the former New Zealand Prime Minister, Jenny Shipley, has been ordered by the country's highest court to pay over $6 million plus interest for compensation for her role in the collapse of a construction company. Jenny Shipley was New Zealand's first female Prime Minister. This is a landmark judgment, which reinforces the obligations that directors have to fulfil their duties diligently and responsibly. We'll talk about diligently. The chairman of Australian Rugby, McLennan, stabbed the previous Australian Rugby coach, Dave Rennie, in the back, brought in his so-called coaching messiah, Eddie Jones, who'd been previously sacked by Australia, Queensland, the Saracens and England. Jones has won one test of his last 14 in England and Australia. Australia were thrashed by France, 41-17 at the weekend. A year ago, Dave Rennie's Wallabies played the same France and lost, I think, by about one point. They may well be saved, Australia, by a very soft draw in the World Cup. But Jones should stop making excuses about a young team. The average age of Australia on the field on Saturday was 25.8. There are many successful Australian teams whose average age was much, much younger than that. And look, just on rugby, don't forget, I should have been telling you this, I'm doing this 11-day cruise, premium river cruise, on the Seine in Paris, October 19 to 29. I'd love you to join us. There are some sweets, I didn't know that, left. All meals and beverages, tickets to the Rugby World Cup semi-finals, the bronze medal playoff, and the final. And then the shore excursions are amazing. The Palace of Versailles, a walking food tour in Normandy's capital, Rouen, a visit to the Franco-Australian Museum and the Sir John Monash Centre, and to go Monet's Garden in Gavern. And there are some sweets left, I didn't know that. So you can just call 1300. I'd love to see you there, 786 1-300-786-888. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. I spoke at the weekend at a freedom of speech conference in Brisbane. At the same time, it was revealed that the Republican-led Congress in America is now going to probe revelations that officials at the highest level of the intelligence community in America censored the input of scientists who concluded that COVID-19 was genetically engineered in a laboratory. Now, the journalist Sherry Markson has done a hell of a job on this. 
She revealed that, quote, senior scientists working for the Defence Intelligence Organisation's National Centre for Medical Intelligence had 90% of their input into a probe ordered by the President deleted, 90%. This, of course, represents the censorship of scientists presenting a view uncomfortable to government. Now, of course, 90% of outstanding scientists' work being censored is the antithesis, of course, of scientific freedom that we need in a modern society to be properly informed. Well, Professor James Allen, the Garrick Professor of Law at the University of Queensland, to whom I often speak on this program, has written about this voice referendum that's driving us nuts, where he argues, quote, many Australian universities officially have come out in favour of the yes side and have done so despite the two main political parties taking opposite sides in the referendum, thereby making this a party political matter. He made the point the University of New South Wales even has lit up one of its main buildings with a big yes. As Professor Allen rightly says, it's bad enough when big corporations use shareholder money to support one side in this referendum, virtually always the yes side, and to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, and likewise when charities do so, arguably calling into serious question whether they're straying outside their charitable purposes. But he said, when taxpayer-funded universities use your tax dollars to take a side on a crucial constitutional referendum issue that splits the country, it's not just a form of virtue signalling, as he said, with other people's money. It comes close to being an improper use of taxpayers' money." Unquote. So, of course, in the university world, as Professor Allen points out, many university students, as well as academics, self-censor. That is, they're frightened to present a dissenting view. So they shut up. Now, don't kid yourself. Freedom of speech is under siege. That's what the conference was about at the weekend. I'll have more to say about it tomorrow. But today we learn that secret economic modelling underpinning plans to cut $59 billion off the surging national disability insurance scheme costs has been blocked from public release by the Albanese government. A freedom of information request was rejected according to the Department of Social Services because, quote, the public interest factors against disclosure were more persuasive than the public interest factors favouring disclosure. You see, there's something the Albanese government doesn't want us to know. So the people who fund the NDS, us, are denied the facts about how it's operating and how the money's being spent. Tomorrow I'll look at this disinformation bill. That's what this is about. Government will decide what you can know and what you can't know. This is what is going to happen. You'll only be told what the government thinks you're entitled to know. And under the legislation, you'll be prevented from saying what government doesn't want to hear. Let's face it, if during coronavirus, under government directions, a mother in her pajamas could be handcuffed in her living room in front of her screaming children, simply because she advised on social media of a lawful protest, but she's arrested, not free to speak about a protest, and we weren't free to enter or leave our own country. Don't pretend that freedom is not on the rack. We further learned yesterday that one of the world's most prestigious science publishers has withdrawn an international study of major weather and extreme events that found there was no evidence of a climate emergency in the records to date. Now, of course, this proves what we know. The so-called climate science has become highly politicised. Dare to differ? You're cancelled. But here's an international study that found there was no evidence of a climate emergency. The study provided a long-term analysis of heat and drought and floods and hurricanes, tornadoes. A year-long study found no clear positive trend of extreme events. Not for the first time, the climate scientist from America, Judith Curry, who'd been asked to appraise the paper, advised against it being withdrawn. She advised in favour of publication. But as I've told you many times, and I've cited eminent scientists from around the world who've argued there is no climate emergency, or you're cancelled. It doesn't suit the political argument. So trillions of dollars are poured into climate change schemes like renewable energy, no matter the economic damage is being done. Well may Dr Curry say, Publishing climate science has become highly politicised with gatekeeper editors that are influenced by mob action from activist scientists. A very sad state of affairs, she said. Well, sad indeed. The scientists might be wrong, but we're entitled to hear what they have to say. Only last month, a landmark ruling in America 
highlighted the extent to which the US government has been pressuring social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook to remove viewpoints it didn't like. The judge Terry Doughty said the allegation entailed, quote, arguably the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history. And here we are having thrust upon us a misinformation and disinformation bill. Governments are exempt. But think coronavirus and climate change and governments are the greatest promoters of misinformation and disinformation. This is government, not as the servant it should be, but the master of our thinking. John Stuart Mill was a British philosopher, a political economist, a civil servant, and an influential thinker in the history of liberalism. He called freedom of thought and discussion, quote, the most fundamental doctrine of a free society. Well, this legislation on misinformation and disinformation is a serious threat to our democracy. John Stuart Mill reminded us over 150 years ago, quote, do not barter away your freedom of thought and the liberty of expressing and publishing opinions, which is practically inseparable from it. You just think, the voice, climate change, coronavirus, you name it, haven't we already bartered away our freedom of thought? which John Stuart Mill called the fundamental doctrine of a free society. There's a reason we're being silenced. Big Brother doesn't like what we're saying. I say bugger Big Brother. We've got to find some ticker and stand up for what we think, no matter what activist or what thought policeman might want to do to you. There's an old axiom, you've got to pay a price for liberty. We might have to pay a price for freedom of thought and expression, but I think the price must be paid. I'll have more to say about that tomorrow. Now, apparently the Prime Minister is going to announce the date for the referendum this week in Adelaide. That's all very well, but he won't announce any of the details. We need to remember that if this referendum were to pass and the voice was established, it would be in the constitution. That means it's not just a law that can be changed with a change of government, it's in the constitution. And for all practical purposes, it'll be there forever. People say, what rights will the voice have? Well. If it's created by the Constitution and the voice is given the right to make representations or give advice to the Parliament and the Executive Government, the Public Service, that right cannot be taken away because it's in the Constitution. And it won't be a limited right. The voice, as I understand, it, will have the right to make representations on, quote, matters relating to Aboriginals, unquote. Now, this obviously means having a connection with the Aboriginals, but it doesn't mean, as Mr Albanese likes to say, only matters that are directly, mainly or solely connected with Aboriginals. Nor does it mean only the big ticket items that Linda Burney said she'll ask the voice to tackle. It means connected with Aboriginals, which is virtually everything. Can a voice complain that its advice was, its advice was ignored? Yes. If the voice has the right to make representations, it must have the right to have them considered, the right to be given reasons if they're rejected. Otherwise, it's being denied the full extent of its rights to give advice, which is written in the Constitution. As the former Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party, Neil Brown, has said, it is therefore open to the voice to sue if it's not being given reasons for the rejection of its advice. Well, this poses a question which I get everywhere I go and I speak across Australia. Who speaks for Indigenous Australians? I thought we'd go way in what you and I would call way, way, way into the middle of nowhere. I have on the line Uncle Richard. Now, where is Uncle Richard? Well, he lives 350 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. That's 400 kilometres from the Queensland border, 1,000 kilometres from Darwin. Now, get this, and he's having a go at me here. As I understand it, he lives at a-M-P-I-L-A-T-W-A-T-J-A. And he said to me, and you'll have to pronounce that, which I won't. <laughs> Uncle Richard joins me. Oh, good evening to you. Lovely to talk to you. Now, where, just tell us where you live and pronounce that place. Oh, come on, yeah. <laughs> All right, good morning, Alan. Yeah, nice to be on your show this morning. And uh, yeah, look, I'll say it for you. I'm blood right on the Sandover Highway about three, 400 kilometres from the uh, empty Queensland border. That's where we are, buddy. I know. And how do you pronounce that A-M-P-I-L-A-T-W-A-T-J-A? 
umbrella a trudge. Um, oh, cut it out. Oh, cut it out. <laughs> You've got me beaten. You've got me beaten. So 350 north kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. As I speak to you now, you're yes. in the Alice, are you? You're in the Alice now. No, no, I'm, I'm right here on the on the community, on the blood rights community. Oh, really? Itself. Goodness me. Thousand, yeah. thousand yes. kilometres from Darwin. So what shops do you have there to enable you to get a pound of butter and a loaf of bread? So we, 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 we've just got one shop. Uh, it's a great shop. It's a good size shop. And that's pretty well got everything there, you know, the, the, what you can buy in Coles and Woolies. So Maybe. it's pretty good. So what's your tribe? Yeah. Uh, a Yawada tribe, um, uh, mate. And how many, how many of your people are living there where you are? Look, we have about uh, 450 to 500. It sort of fluctuates because the itinerant, they're moving backwards and forwards. So what do you make and of the voice? The what do you make of the voice? Pardon? What do you make of the voice? No, look, um, I think I think it's all a garbage. You know, for a start, we're getting left out, all our people across the region, uh, Alan, you know. There's no one coming out to, to talk to the people, to explain to the people and give them the details. There's nothing. So they're all confused. They're all confused. Jacinta Price said she wanted to debate the whole issue with Linda Burney, but Linda Burney says she's too busy. I mean, what do you think of that? Don't we need to know what this is about? Yes, definitely. Definitely. You know, that's that's not good enough, especially, you know, like it, it's, a, it's a once in a, a lifetime a big change that's going to happen. She should be on stage debating and we should be having an open debate, honest debate about it, not sort of um, um, calling us racism because we say no and that, that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's listen, listen, Uncle Richard, we had corporate Australians supporting the Yes campaign and embracing the Uluru statement, the full statement, when the full statement and its dialogues weren't available. I mean, shouldn't our top chief executives have known better than to endorse proposals when they didn't even know the detail of what they're endorsing? No, look, unless they know uh, more than we do, you know. So, uh, yeah, I just don't understand. You know, they're pouring in so many millions of dollars into the uh, Yes campaign and uh, and supporting that. So, um, yeah, I, I just don't know... No understand knows. why they're doing that. No one knows. What do you make, yeah. Richard, Uncle Richard, what do you make of people like Thomas Mayo, the union official, he's a self-described militant, and he wrote the book on the proposed constitutional change. He sits on the Prime Minister's referendum working group and he drafted the referendum question and his signature is on this Uluru statement. He spent a year and a half travelling the country trying to talk Australians into changing the constitution. Have you met this Thomas Mayo? Never heard of him, Alan. Never yeah. heard of him until a couple of months ago. That's the first time I saw him and the um, uh, Reed lady. Yeah, that's right. Alongside uh, uh, the the prime minister there, and uh, in front of all the TVs, and uh, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, okay, these people are coming out of the woodworks. Where were they? You know, we don't know those people. No. He's on record as saying that the voice is a campaign tool to, quote, punish politicians and abolish colonial institutions. What do you make of all of this? He said we should pay the rent, pay reparations, make compensation. What do you make of all this stuff? Look, that's bad news, Alan, bad news, you know, because a lot of our people are saying, and uh, even now and before, said, you know, we've come so far. To, to build a relationship, which we were starting to, uh, uh, you know, create that bridge and starting to come together, then the last thing we want is uh, a militant guy like uh, Mayo pushing all that agenda about um, payback or reparation and all that. And uh, no, because that's that's going to take us back 50, 100 years. Yes. He described, so we, he described the powers that be, uh, Mayo described the, quote, powers that be as murderous. I mean... It's hardly the language of reconciliation, is it? That's that's it. That's it. But coming from a union, you know, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and we definitely don't want any part of that guy. Uh, Uncle, or, Richard, or simple qu- Uncle Richard, simple question. Who is listening to your voice? Well, look, a lot of the um, Indigenous people across, uh, across the centre, 
uh, a lot of good uh, non-Aboriginal people that are, uh, you know, wanting to find out. And uh, and that's about all. But our voice across the central region and remote regions are, are silence. Yeah. They're not getting out there. And will they be and, voting? Uh, will they be voting no? Look, that's that's the, that's what I'm hearing, and I'm just saying if if you're going to, uh, you know, you can't decide when you really don't have that information. So if you're unsure, yeah, you're going to have to write yeah. no in the two columns. No, no. Yeah, if you don't know that's, both, that's no. it. You, you, this is Professor Megan Davis. That's it. Megan Davis, she's a key member of the Prime Minister's Referendum Working Group, and she said, and I quote, the Uluru State from the Heart isn't just a first one-page statement, it's actually a very lengthy document of about 18 to 20 pages. But then recently <laughs> sensing trouble, she's backing off at 100 miles an hour, leading the Prime Minister to say earlier this month, quote, Professor Megan Davis confirms the Uluru Statement of the Heart is one page comprising 439 words. I mean, have any of your people up there got any idea what this Uluru statement is? No idea, Adam, no idea, you know, and with a lot of that uh, information is not filtering back down into the remote regions and the people and uh, uh, even in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, people uh, that got the TVs and uh, linkages and all that, uh, they say, no, we don't know what's, what the voice is all about. So that's, that's what I I'm know. Hiding, you well, know. No one. Well, no, we yeah. don't know. Hey, you're no better than us, Uncle Richard. We don't know either. But Jacinta Nampajimpa Price received a letter from the National Indigenous Australians Agency, I've never heard of them, Chief Executive Jody Bruin, yeah. saying the statement was one page. I mean, she wrote to Jacinta and she said, quote, the Uluru Statement is one page, signed by the delegates of the National Convention in 2017, the authors of the Uluru Statement from the Heart have confirmed this, one page. But the same National Indigenous Australians Agency FOI team confirmed to Senator Price in July that document 14 in the FOI release, which is 26 pages long, was the Uluru Statement. Uluru Statement. I mean, one minute they're saying it's one page, they're getting into trouble, then they're saying it's 26 pages. How the hell could anyone work out where we are? And you're right. If you don't know, vote no. Isn't that the answer? Look, that's correct. That's correct. Look, a lot of them are backpedalling now because, uh, uh, you know, the pushback's coming from uh, right across from all people, you know, black and white, and saying we want a bit more detail, we want a bit more meat and explain to us. And, uh, and, and look, it's, it's funny, Alan, you know, you, you mentioned Megan Davis and there's quite a few others that's been sort of, uh, pushing the treaty and uh, putting it all together all along, all of a sudden they're in the background, you know. Why aren't those people sort of standing alongside Albanese and uh, and not not uh, Thomas May on uh, likes, you That's know? Well, they they should. Well, they, yeah. they want to disown them now. They're pretending all that hasn't happened. See, in 2014, late 2014, <laughs> Noel Pearson was interrupted. Yep. Noel Pearson was interrupted at a public lecture at the Queensland Conservatorium by a Murray man who told Noel Pearson, publicly stood up and he said, pardon the language, you're talking shit. He said, you're standing here talking up like you support all the black people in this country. And the heckler shouted, you don't speak for me and my family. And you're standing here speaking like you are the chosen voice. You are not the chosen voice. How many of your people, no. would, how many of your people would agree with that? Look, they're not the chosen voice. And... Uh in our languages, you know, you've got 250 languages across across this country now, and uh, and uh, my people, I can speak up on behalf of my people, but I can't speak up on behalf of uh, other language groups. That's it. So, you know, when you, when you mentioned Noel no, Pearson speaking up, who's he speaking up for? Is it for his clan or his language tribe or what? You know? Yeah. And and that's where we come with that. Uh, uh, I think it's about. Uh, 30, 35 districts, Alan, you know, yeah. how that's going to represent 250 languages. You can't. Brilliant. And Brilliant. what... Uh, Lydia Thorpe, Lydia yeah. Thorpe, uh, Uncle Richard, Lydia Thorpe wants sovereignty. Okay. What do you make of that? And, and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. She, she, yeah. she wants to own the joint. She wants to own the joint and we'll all pay rent. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, look, Alan. You know they, they all want to push the card without without the horse or donkey. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, Rob, what, what Robin and I say is drop all this other voice garbage and stuff, go back to square one, you know. It should be recognition of it uh, uh, in the Constitution is um, Aboriginal trade, Torres Strait Islanders recognition, the languages, the boundaries and the culture. And there's your foundation there, Alan. There's your base. There's a rock there mm. you can build on. But see, none, you, of this is, none, of this is, none of this is addressing the problems that you and I have talked about. I mean, the violence in no. the Northern Territory, uh, the rape, the murder, the, and often it's Aboriginal versus Aboriginal. Now, that's easy to resolve tomorrow. I mean, you, you put someone up there, you put the money into it, and you sort out the education and the health and the violence and all the rest of it. That can be done now. Yes, yes. Look, Robin Grandance and I, we, we did have a link up uh, with Linda Burney, Minister Burney, and uh, and we told her, you know, the, the the problems and issues in Alice Springs that can be solved within a month with with us people. But there's there are a lot of our families, and she threw that two hundred twenty million dollars into it, and uh, but nothing's come out to the regions. You know, it's focusing on your yeah. town centres, Alice Springs, Tennant yeah. Creek, and so on. It's most probably so stack, it's most probably stacking Uncle Richard, most probably stack of white bureaucrats finishing up with the money. You don't know where it goes. I mean, for example, you know, the, the, under native title, the Northern Territory gets all these royalties from mining, 365 million a year. Where does that money go? Yeah, that's right. And where's that $34 billion people are saying that we're getting? We, we don't. We, we, we get drip feeds because it's hard for not into administration, your bureaucrats, your, your, your services, government uh, uh, providers and government agencies and, and corporate bodies. Then by the time it gets to us, it just drifted. There's nothing there, Alan, you know? Absolutely. So just a final comment. Yeah, yeah. What a final comment. We're going all over the world, this broadcast. Um, lovely mm -hmm. to talk to you. What then, you're in the middle of all of this. I mean, here's a man. <laughs> I'd never be able to find the place. I told him that. So what are you saying to Australia? <laughs> what are you saying to Australians about this referendum? Look, everyone needs to wake up, needs to ask themselves, are we being, being told the truth, you know? Where's the, the, the information that we say we want and where is it? We're not getting that. And ask yourselves questions like why the no campaign is getting shut down and millions of dollars poured into the yes campaign and and why isn't the voice from the, from the desert across the region being heard from from the leaders to say whether they want this or whether they want uh, this. It's not ha happening, Alan, you know? Absolutely. So it's the same thing. Well, you know, why, just uh, if you're I'm unsure. That's why I'm talking to you. Fantastic to hear from you. Great to hear. Now, listen, when you get to Sydney, we'll catch up for a feed, eh? Oh, definitely will, Alan, and thanks for having, having me on your show, mate. And, not at all. And you look after yourself. Trying to, trying to. There we are. See, that's an insight. There's Uncle Richard. I mean, he just started at the beginning saying it's garbage. I mean, I speak, I write to Indigenous Australians. They're saying the same thing. No one's speaking for Uncle Richard and his people. One voice. It's nonsense. Anyway, that's an insight, isn't it, from someone right in the centre of things. We call him Uncle Richard and we love him. Be back after this. There can be no doubting now that for many reasons Donald Trump is the most significant political figure in the world the most famous man, a presidential candidate facing 91 criminal charges. Donald Trump do dominates the national conversation. As the British journalist Freddie Gray wrote recently, following Donald Trump's refusal to debate with his would-be challengers, and I quote, Trump doesn't need the TV networks. He is not the novelty he was in 2015. He has his own movement, his own media networks, his own irrepressible brand. He is the message. He is the medium. Well, the corollary of that is because the brand is so powerful, he can pick and choose where he goes and people follow him there. Last week, he upstaged eight Republican rivals who were debating on Fox News. Trump accepted an invitation to an interview with the irrepressible and eminently listenable Tucker Carlson on Platform X, which used to be Twitter. It raised the question, can social media platforms mount a serious challenge to TV news? Well, thanks to you, my viewers, we are doing just that here and our audience numbers verify the challenge. Tucker Carlson's interview aired during the Republican debate on Fox News 
the interview had 236 million total view impressions by the following afternoon. Two key measures of engagement. How long did people stay viewing? The likes totaled 690,000. 236 million total view impressions for Tucker Carlson and the Donald on Twitter, 12.8 million watching the Republican debate on Fox News. Rightly, it's being argued that a one-off interview may not be a game changer for Fox News, but I suspect if there is more of the same with Tucker Carlson, it becomes a big threat. Fox News has seen its primetime ratings decline since Carlson's departure, mirroring developments here. And then there is Newsmax, another challenge to Fox News. Trump was right when he addressed his absence from the debate in Milwaukee, saying he didn't see a reason to do battle with his rivals while leading in the polls by a wide margin. He's right. Trump appears in a so-called debate and the world watches, which is giving a profile to his opponents. Donald Trump spoke in that Carlson interview about the decline of television as a medium. He meant free-to-air and cable TV, like Fox News. And Trump made the obvious point that he would get better ratings, more people watching, on a streaming service like Twitter, now called X. Well, back to Donald Trump. We're 11 months out from a Republican convention. The primaries begin in January. Trump appears an unstoppable force, a smart strategist, avoiding the debate so that there would be no spotlight for his opponents. As Michael Wolff, the best-selling writer, said, without Trump, there is no spotlight. Trump has become a political phenomenon. I've previously outlined his achievements when he was president. His critics want to deny them, but they're a reality. And now here's a presidential candidate facing 91 criminal counts, and everyone knows what's happened. I mean, the Democrats have weaponized every instrument of government, and yet he dominates the national and international conversation. His critic asks, how can someone facing these indictments in four different states still be popular enough across the country to win a major party nomination? How does every indictment make his poll ratings improve? There is nothing wrong or illegal with a candidate questioning an election outcome. Hillary Clinton and the Democrats did that endlessly after Trump won the first time. You see, people have a highly developed sense of justice. Trump is the first president or ex-president of the United States to be treated in this way, mugshots to have major instruments of government weaponized against him, the Department of Justice, the FBI. There are only two. A 25-year-old American serving in the military summed it up when he said, Trump, one of the most powerful men in the free world, was taken into custody by his political opponents because he questioned election integrity. The 25-year-old went on, Trump's the most investigated man in our history, with the intent evident. The Democratic Party and the far left don't want him to run for president and succeed. He says, while the 25-year-old, while the mugshot will certainly rally the Republican base, the arrest now sets a dangerous precedent for how the United States handles the ruling party's opposition, unquote. Well, so far the Democrats seem to have scored an own goal. The Trump campaign's raised over $11 million since the former president was booked at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. Trump's legal woes have been a fundraising boom and the charges have failed to dent his standing in the Republican presidential primary. He's routinely beating rivals by 30 to 50 points in the polls. But there's been an interesting development in Pennsylvania where legal experts are arguing that Trump has absolute immunity from prosecution for actions taken as president. And a Pennsylvania judge ruled that Trump cannot be sued or indicted due to presidential immunity. A defence attorney has argued that the cases against Trump may be tossed out because they deal with actions he took as president. Well, what's clear is that Trump's support is more than large enough to win the Republican nomination. The Democrats are behaving as they are because they fear he can win the presidency and continue to drain the swamp. And you think of the way we're governed, the voice, coronavirus, energy policy, indoctrination in schools, government spending, waste, the determination to punish people who dare to disagree, there's more in this world than the American swamp. We've got a big one here. The world knows that Trump is fair dinkum. It's still hard to believe that a bloke who barely appeared in the last election campaign could win an election when an incumbent Trump gained more votes in seeking a second term than any American president in history. The Democrat campaign against Trump is based on the unstated view that the Democrats know Trump can win. What I believe is certain to happen 
is that a cognitively declining Biden will be dumped and the Democrat component of the political equation could well result in a changed political scene. But that's then, this is now, and Trump is now unassailable. That's why the Democrats will continue to use every instrument of government to block him, and along the way, democracy itself is being challenged. Look, as you know, I've been saying for weeks, though a sycophantic media won't report it, that behind the scenes there is panic within the Albanese government. The Prime Minister has hitched his wagon to the Voice campaign, and you heard earlier on Uncle Richard, authentic Aboriginal Australian in the Northern Territory saying he and his people haven't been consulted. In fact, he said they've never seen anyone. He called the voice, you heard him, garbage. Then of course, there's energy policy in relation to so-called climate change. One of the architects of some common sense in the Dutton Coalition is Ted O'Brien. He's the Queensland Federal Member for the seat of Fairfax. That was once held, you might remember, by Clive Palmer. He's 49 years of age, he's no dope, He's a graduate of the University of Queensland, the National Taiwan Normal University, the London School of Economics and the University of Melbourne. He is a businessman and he's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Prior to entering politics, he enjoyed considerable experience across Asia. And Ted O'Brien joins me for the first time. Ted, welcome to the first time to the program. We go, as I said, all around the world. Can I, can I just ask you this? One of the problems I think we have in politics is staff, S-T-A-F-F. Now, I can't imagine that a bloke of your credentials would want to know, as we've got a call today, what questions I'm going to ask. I said, listen, he's too smart to worry about what questions he's going to be asked. Uh, you know, some of these staff members, though, get uh, politicians into trouble thinking that they're the MP. Have you got a problem with any of that? I certainly don't have any problem with my staff, Alan, but I think, as you know probably better than anyone, um, when you are in politics, uh, you're the one who puts yourself on the front line um, and you'll live or die based on your own performance. Mm. And uh, that's, that's a game I'm in and very happy to be here. Good on you. Now, we keep changing the language, don't we, from global warming to climate change. And now we're talking about decarbonising the economy. Don't you agree that the issue we're attacking is not carbon, but carbon dioxide? Yeah, indeed, Alan, and I think maybe, I don't know whether it's just over the years, the vernacular of carbon dioxide might be too too many syllables to get out of the mouth and everyone just says carbon nowadays, but indeed it is carbon dioxide but rather the ABC, than carbon. But see, Ted, the ABC are happy to give you pictures whenever it's mentioned of smokestacks and all this stuff billowing out of these chimneys in England, which is not carbon dioxide, it's carbon. Well, look, indeed, and I have to say, Alan, when they talk about nuclear, and I'm not just talking about the ABC here, but a lot of different outlets, when I talk about nuclear energy, they'll often go to what they say, these really polluting smokestacks, when in fact it's steam coming out. Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, but nevertheless, um, that's the game that gets played. Mm, it's the theatre of the debate, well, it's, it's which just, is a substitute it's just, substance. It's dishonest. It's as simple as that. It is just not used to be the ABC. It's dishonest. Carbon dioxide's invisible. If it is the problem, this is not a trick question, Ted, I'm sorry, but what is the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if it's the problem? I, I think the big problem I find since I filled this portfolio and Peter Dutton asked me to is uh, if I look at the current policy suite that the Australian government is adopting, it's as much about trying to deindustrialise the Australian economy as it is to decarbonise it, if you like. So if the name of the game is to reduce emissions then we need to be very focused on what that means. Um, what we can't continue to do as an economy is try to achieve emission reduction targets, actually closing down and weakening our industries. And my fear is that is precisely what is happening at the moment. And if we continue down this path as a nation, Australia will become weaker to foreign interests whose interests don't align with ours. Yes, see, I, I, my concern here is, like you, I agree about nuclear energy and all that sort of stuff, but nuclear energy is down the track. And I'm just concerned that when the Coalition talks about nuclear energy, it's virtually surrendering to the Labor Party the need to get rid of coal and gas when these things have been the source of our national wealth and there is perfect nothing wrong with them. I mean, carbon dioxide is a limited component of the atmosphere. 
and we've got, we're inculcating in the minds of young people the Greta Thunberg notion that we're all the climate, the world's going to end because of climate change and this terrible carbon dioxide. And so we're not going to have fossil fuels, we'll throw away coal, chuck away gas, can't put wood on the fire. Uh, someone's got to dismantle this hysteria, I think, before we get to nuclear energy. And Alan, I think a problem we have is you have people on the far left that their business model is to whip up hysteria. In the absence of hysteria, they have no business model. And so that's what they double down on. And I think it's just going back to basics of being pragmatic with this, right? Um, if we have a premature closure of our coal-fired power stations in Australia with no guarantee of a replacement. It's pretty clear what happens. The system collapses. The economy collapses. And so, you know, anyone in business knows that you need an implementation plan. You need to do economic modelling. You need to take advice from the engineers and those people who understand it. None of the above has been done by this government. Um, not even their 43% emissions reduction target, not even their 82% renewable energy target for 2030, did they get Treasury or the Department to do one scrap of economic modelling? They absolutely. will not listen to engineers. The mm. whole thing is a disaster case. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. I don't understand. I'm not prepared to give ground to the Bowens and Albanese's and so on, I mean, about getting rid of coal and gas. I'm not prepared to concede that. That's been the source of our national wealth. And as I said, if carbon dioxide's the problem, it's 0.04% of the atmosphere. Now, Morrison, only a couple of years ago, brought a lump of coal into question time to validate the importance of this to our economy. What's happened to the Liberal Party since then? Well, certainly two things, Alan. Number one, I don't think anything's changed when it comes to the importance of us leveraging our resources for the strength of our economy. Now, I, I was beaten up um, recently on, on uh, Q&A um, by the Mayor of Newcastle, of all people, because I was suggesting that Australia should continue to export its coal to some nations like, let's say, Japan that needs it for its energy security and other nations like India that needs it to, to keep the lights on. Um, but of course, you get beaten up by people because you are trying to leverage a comparative advantage, something that creates not just wealth for Australia, but security for our allies and uh, and the lights being on and prosperity for yes. other trading partners but, like India. But, but isn't this now, what... When, when it, it comes to... It, isn't this what Madeleine King said last week? I mean, she's the Labor Minister. Over in WA, she knows about this. She said people on the eastern seaboard don't understand where our wealth has come from. And she said coal and gas and hydrogen, these people, these things have been worth $500 billion to Australia. So, Ted, why doesn't the Liberal Party challenge the government to say, all right, I get rid of coal and gas and everything. How do you replace the $500 billion? Bowen would say, oh, we're going to export renewable energy. I mean, he's kidding this bloke, isn't he? He, he's, he, he's absolutely mad, to be honest, Alan. I, I don't know why he's there. I don't know why he is kept there. I think he's a very dangerous person very. to be having in, in that position. Very. Um, and look, we, we do call them out. We do challenge it. Um, but of course, um, you know, uh, Chris Bowen just keeps barking uh, his solution of this sort of mad But, but you would, would you concede, Ted, that, Ted, Ted, sorry to interrupt you, but would you concede we have no hope of getting to net zero carbon dioxide by 2050. None whatever. Now, it just can't be done. Now, you can't power the economy on renewables. I mean, you yourself have said, in any given time, our dependence on fossil fuels is up to 80%. You've had experience in Asia. China are building two coal-fired power stations a week. As I speak to you right now, China are financing and supporting new coal-fired power plants in the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Mozambique, Malawi, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Serbia, and they're thirsty for our coal. I mean, our, our program goes into all those countries, by the way. What are we saying to them? Alan, we have, as you mentioned before, and it's something I say frequently, we have 80% of our baseload power exiting the grid by 2035. 
Um, and the Labor Party cheers on the race to the exit. Now, there is zero guarantee of like-for-like replacement. And therein lies a key problem. I mean, I worry about prices probably more than anything day to day, about the impact of price rises on businesses and households. However, I think a bigger problem is the fact that we are going to have 80% of baseload power gone without any guarantee of a replacement. I know, but I just don't um, know why the coalition now, don't make an issue of this and just keep banging away. I don't understand. I mean, to me, I reckon if you went to an election and saying, we're not going down, we're not going over this cliff with Bowen, and we're not going to demonise coal-fired power. It's been the source of our wealth, gas and coal. We'll have clean, we can have clean coal, uh, high efficiency, low emissions coal, if carbon dioxide's the problem. Why are we surrendering all this when the rest of the world, China building two coal-fired power stations a week? They don't give a stuff about any of this. Yeah, well, Alan, I can promise you one thing. There is no chance we're going to the election holding hands with Chris Bowen. Uh, I can promise you that one um, because we know that that is holding hands, racing to a cliff, um, and, and therein lies the problem. Look, I think when it comes to Australia's challenge, one of the things that you know we're talking about is nuclear energy. I have looked at this, studied this. I've, I've spoken to a lot of experts around the world. I've been grappling like anyone has with how do we as a country ensure that we can lower emissions while remaining a strong country and a wealthy one. And I've come to the very simple conclusion that you cannot get to net zero unless you have a substantial embrace of nuclear energy. Or to put it differently, no nuclear, no net zero. But see, can I take you up on that? This is where I have a real problem. You know, that the coalition is saying we want to lower emissions. Why? Is carbon dioxide causing a problem? 0.04% of the atmosphere. I could quote scientist after scientist after scientist who has said, this is nothing but alarmism. This is coronavirus all over again. You know, all the alarmism and fear and hysteria. I mean, 0.04% of the atmosphere. How low do we want to get these emissions? I mean, it is a non-existent invisible gas. It's the source of all plant life carbon dioxide. And little old Australia is 1.3% down here. The whole world man-made carbon dioxide, 3% of 0.04%. Where do you, you're a smart man. Where do you put in the decimal point? See, we're surrendering ground to these, these Labor left-wing people and damaging the economy along the way by saying, well, we want to lower emissions. We're with you. We're with you. We want, to be, we want to be zero by 2050. What a heap of nonsense, eh? Well, I think there's two, two ways to tackle this, Alan. Um, one is what's happening internationally, and I agree 100% with you on the need for other countries who are having enormous amounts of emissions um, to, to be cutting their own emissions. And I agree with the lunacy of closing down Australian industry that only sees those same companies pop up in high-emitting countries like China and India. And so this is why we're against things like the, uh, the carbon tax that Labor introduced. Once you have companies that decide they're going to close down in Australia because they are being taxed for reasons of emissions, they will go to countries like India and China that have between three and four times the emissions as Australia. Mm, mm. So if that's the case, if mm. we're closing industry Good. on the basis of reducing emissions, only for them to produce three to four times the emissions overseas, you have to start asking yourself, well, so hang on, why are we doing this again? And so I think there's that part of the equation which yeah, is very so you're, much you're international. You're still talking, Ted, about emissions. The emissions are carbon dioxide emissions. I can't understand what's the problem. 0.04% so, of the so, atmosphere. But, I mean, Bowen says we need 47 megawatt wind turbines every month. Where are they? 22,500 watt solar. This bloke's mad. Every day, 22,000. Where are we? I mean, where would they be without massive subsidies? Who owns the wind turbines? China. Then you've got transmission lines, tens of thousands of kilometres to connect up the renewable energy. I mean, I'm just saying, Ted, you're a smart man, you're well-educated. This ought to be a picnic for the coalition, attacking this stupidity, day in, day out. And then when the lights go out, 
They'll say, well, Dutton warned us, O'Brien warned us, they warned us we were on the right side. I mean, inner city viewers might be warm and fuzzy about all this, but regional communities can't cop it. I mean, you'd need land, Ted, and the size of Victoria, land the size of Victoria, and even then, you couldn't meet the wind and solar panel targets. The si if you planted turbines and solar panels all over Victoria, you still wouldn't meet the targets. I just, I don't understand why the coalition aren't going 100 miles an hour attacking these people on all of this. So, Alan, we're in violent agreement about, I think, nearly everything you said there. I'll get to the point where I don't think we are in a sec. But whether it is um, wanting 22,000 solar panels every single day, uh, 40 wind turbines every single month, up to 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines, it is absolutely nuts. Um, prices are going to go through the roof. Reliability will be threatened. The social licence has not been granted by regional communities. It's, it's escalating issues of sovereign risk. We are even seeing now even investment in renewables have stalled. Um, and so it, it's not going to happen unless they entirely collapse the economy. Now, are we going after them on all of those points? Absolutely we are, unashamedly so. I don't think a day goes by without Peter Dutton and every member of our leadership team reminding people that this government promised a $275 reduction in power bills. Now, all the problems we talk about, they manifest themselves in a power bill. And so even people who don't care about energy and their eyes glaze, you look at that power bill, that's where the problem comes to bear. I know, Ted, I know, Ted, Ted, Ted but I'll tell you something. I think fair dinkum Liberals out there who've, who've departed the scene, we've lost 650,000 Liberal votes since Tony Abbott won the landslide, 650,000 can't find a home. They actually think we've got a foot in Labor's camp on all of this. I mean, Bowen wants to place Australia's 215 largest carbon dioxide emitters, and I repeat again, I hope no idea what the problem is with carbon dioxide. But anyway, he wants to place the 215 under commercial pressure, unless they reduce emissions by 5% every year, every year, until the end of the decade, and penalties if you don't, so they'll just take off overseas. I mean, overseas competitors are not facing these restrictions. Australian businesses will shut down and head overseas. And then the bribes keep going. I mean, you remove the fringe benefit tax on electric vehicles. That's a straight out gift to high income earners who can afford one. I mean, Ted, Ted, are you aware of Michael Schellenberger, a world renowned environmental activist for 20 years, world renowned. In 2020, he apologised for, quote, yes. the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years. Of climate change, he said, it's not even our most serious environmental problem. He said, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Why wouldn't Peter Dutton read this stuff out in question time and ask Bowen what his answer is? Does he know more than Schellenberg? Oh, Alan, look, we, we have been going after both Bowen and Albanese. I don't want to let Albanese off the hook just no, because Bowen's no, a minister no. who's mad. Albanese put him there. Yep. Um, we've been going after both of them and we will continue to do so. I mean, the stakes are too high, right? I mean, um, we botch our energy system in this country. It's over. It's definitely, over. Definitely. I worry. You know, I've we're on our own on the approach that's being taken to try to address these issues. We are on our own globally. I mean, you know, um, Chris Bowen might point to the likes of Germany and say, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of things just like Germany are doing. No, we're not. I mean, yes, Germany did prematurely yeah, close some of their baseload power they, stations. They're opening coal-fired power stations. Them. Exactly. They mothballed them. They had the common sense to at least say we're not going to demolish no, the No, they asset. were there if they wanted them. But here mm. in Australia, here God. in Australia, yep. we are demolishing them, mm. blowing them up in some cases. Unlike other countries, as you know, Alan, we are an island. It's us. There's no one else. We don't mm. We don't import electricity. No, no it's we, us we can't plug into someone island. else's power. We can't plug into someone else's power and the lights go out. No. I mean, exactly. what so, Albanese so are talking about? I mean, I've never heard Albanese to have 58 suburbs to house community batteries. I mean, bloody hell. I mean, this is laughable. And Labor said in 2021 it had installed 400, uh, I've never heard such nonsense, community batteries and that will reduce power bills and that will cut emissions and that will lower the demand on the grid.
And the bribes continue to flow. They call them grants. So they're giving them 450,000 and 500,000 to 52 to success, successful applicants to deliver these batteries. Half a million dollars, our money. And Alan, this is where our approach uh, we now define as being all of the above, which again provides an entry into the discussion for next generation nuclear energy. And Schellenberger, who you mentioned, if you speak to Michael Schellenberger on this stuff, I mean, this guy is a serious environmentalist. And he is the first one to say, you cannot deal with an energy system unless you have a good dose of nuclear energy. So um, going back to our previous conversation, as I've looked around the world and spoken to, to different countries, I look at, in particular, Canada. And I spent some time in Ontario, the province there in Canada. Here is a country that, yes, they are also looking at reducing emissions. So they're on the, you know, trying to seek the same global contribution as Australia is, trying to meet those, um, you know, big global targets as Australia has signed up for. They have up to 60% nuclear in their mix. And their, their power bills for households in Canada are less than half of what the Australian household mm. bills are, it, that is in the province of Ontario. I know. And but so see, here, here I know. and this is the thing, right, there is there yeah. is a way mm. for us to deal with these challenges, but we have to have all of the above. Yes. We can't accept the lunacy from the left. We've got to be humble enough mm. to learn from our allies overseas, including those that are embracing next generation zero emissions nuclear energy. Yeah, I mean, the zero emissions, that was carbon dioxide. This is my percent. I come back to my point, 0.04 for the atmosphere. You've got to be bloody stupid to imagine that's causing the problems that they're attributing. I mean, you've got kids and they go to school. Those kids are being fed this Greta Thunberg diet that the world will come to an end because vandals like you and me have done nothing about climate change, which is caused by carbon dioxide. But every man and his dog with a private plane flew at the weekend to the middle of WA to celebrate Twiggy Forrest's Fortis, uh, 21st birthday party for Fortescue. I mean, the carbon dioxide emissions didn't worry them at the weekend. I think that's called hypocrisy. <laughs> hypocrisy. Anyway, look, Ted, we could go on forever. It's great to talk to you, but I just don't think the, the, the base, your coalition base, believes that you've separated yourself from this Labor nonsense. Now, I know that you say these things and the left-wing media don't report them, so obviously you're saying more things than are being reported, but I just think the Coalition have got to say we're not going over the energy cliff with Bowen because he jeopardises Australia's future and I think the most dangerous man since World War II. Look, we'll keep talking. It's great to talk and I hope we can talk again. Stay there. Fire the bullets. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks very much for your time, Alan. Righto, Ted. There we are. Now, he's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Ted O'Brien, from the Queensland federal seat of Fairfax. Look, just before we go, and I propose some of the things we've already said on the program, Jenny George AO, who's most probably listening to the program now, Jenny, good evening to you, is the former Labor Party member of the House of Representatives for almost a decade, representing the seat of Throsby in New South Wales, down Wollongong Way. She won't mind me saying it, but she was born Eugenie Sinecki in Italy. She's been Vice President of the ACTU, Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, and the first woman to be President of the ACTU. She retired from Parliament at the 2010 federal election. But she's not been silent on this critical issue of Bowen's energy policy. Now, Bowen was given a media column last week in which he insisted that his energy program incorporating what we said earlier, 82% of renewables by 2030, he said, oh, that's achievable. Bowen says he's got a laser-like focus to deliver it. And he talks about decarbonisation, frightened to admit it's carbon dioxide that they're seeking to address. Well, Jenny George responded splendidly to this. Nonsense, of course, because as Bowen is fighting for his job, heading over an energy cliff, summed up by Jenny George when she wrote, quote, should virtue signalling continue to override what is happening on the ground, then we are stuck on the path of economic calamity. She writes, Jenny George, you can't power a modern economy without reliable, dispatchable baseload power. The minister is overseeing a renewable strategy that sends profits and jobs overseas, unquote. Jenny George, former union boss, doesn't miss, quote, taxpayers are being slugged for no appreciable gain. They fund the subsidies for renewables and transmission, leading to higher power prices that push more people into energy poverty. 
She said, these households are then assisted by taxpayer-funded relief packages, unquote. She rightly says, the Minister's confidence continues to defy the reality on the ground. Every major project is well over time and well over budget. Snowy 2.0, the classic example. She said opposition to the new transmission lines is growing as people realise the impact on productive agricultural land and the destruction of our natural environment. Says Jenny George, it's as if none of the community concerns have been heard by the minister, unquote. And Jenny George says correctly, while power prices will continue rising, reliability cannot be assured, unquote. Well, the worst of both worlds. Prices climbing, as if the cost of living isn't enough and the supply demands can't be met by renewable energy. Jenny George has been in the Labor Party forever. She knows that Bowen is arrogant and thinks he knows everything. He is heading, I'm telling you, for political oblivion. Make sure he doesn't take you and me with him. Well, that's it from me for tonight. Thank you for your company. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Tell your friends, an authentic Aboriginal Australian in the middle of the Northern Territory has described the voice as garbage. Now you can listen to tonight's program on the podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.